Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean Old Lion Media presents The History of Being Black. What up, though? Welcome to the History of Being Black podcast. I am Jay Hall. We are here again. It's the end of the year. This might be our last guest for 2022 since I came on. But if not, then it's definitely going to be one of the most special because I am here with author, writer, editor, and my HU family, Darby Bayham. How you doing? Hey, HU. <laughs> I'm doing so, great, Jay. I'm doing great. Thank you. That's good. I, I would just like to say off top, you came in here blasting because your background is already killing mine. I got these little two pictures up. You got straight up books. The hair is looking like life. It's just killing everything off and out off the visuals. To, you know, this is audio and you still killing it. You still you kill, you still you still came. So it's you know. You know, I feel like I've had to become like a book influencer as I've become an author. So <laughs> I have my little background always ready. I got my Barack, got my my books right there. <laughs> always ready to to represent, you know. <laughs> I don't mind that, you know, especially we in this state right now where books that people are being so anti books now, you know, so it's having in the background and understanding that books are cool and necessary, I think is, you know, is, is something that's needed. So, no, I do say thank you to that. It's just that it's killing me. That's all I'm saying. It's just <laughs> it's just killing me. How are you? How's I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I will just say when I shine, you shine. Right. Like that's that's how we do. So it's not a it's not a competition here. That's what I always remember. Just, just the positiveness, you know. Like we, we be on campus, you know. We got finals. You be like, but it's not the final of life. It's not the final. Of life. <laughs> just like, yo, where, where you get this from? Like, where does this energy come from? Like, I, I don't get it, but I admire it, and it's good to see um, it blossom, you know, so much. We was talking off mic, you know, just about how today was. You know, let me just say, uh, rest in peace to DJ Twitch. We got that news this morning. It kind of took all of us a little bit off that. And, you know, I was tweeting today about how we're always talking about life is short and, you know, you can't take life for granted. And it feels like when these things, incidents happen, we go right back to normal. And, you know, it kind of can be a struggle, even when it comes to someone that you you didn't necessarily know, but you saw them from afar and you kind of made unintentional assumptions about what you thought their life might be. And when you get hit with a tragedy, it's just like, man, just, it just, for me, everyone, every once in a while, it hits me in a certain different way and it care about mental health. And then all the way up into this long day, you and I get to talk here, and then you say, well, we're going to talk about Black love. Now, usually, I hated that phrase when it first came out. I've been learning to understand it a lot more because I was so like, and this is why you got to really check yourself about who explains what to you. Because sometimes people don't know what they talk about. You know, the first person was like, well, you know, we got to show these white folks we, we, we Black love too. And I'm like, why are we showing white people? How we, what, what does that mean? And then a good friend of mine, Charlotte Anderson, was like, no, Jay, it's Black love and everything. It's display. It's this and this and this. And knowing your history and what you do when it comes to the romance novels that we're going to get into in the, in the book and Black love and things like that, when you speak about Black love, what does that mean for Darby? 
Oh man, it means so many things. I think, first of all, it means acknowledging Black humanity, right? When I think about Black love, it's not at all about anybody else's gaze on us. It's reminding ourselves that we deserve it, that we can get it, that like, you know, in a romantic way and an agape way and all the different facets that love shows up in our lives, that Black people deserve and can get that in droves. Um, and I think you do that by telling Black stories. You do that by sharing with each other and reminding ourselves, like, just among friends and family, like, hey, like, I love you, you know? And I think the death of Twitch today is just a reminder of how important that is because like you say, he's, for me, I knew of him as a dancer. I used to watch So You Think You Can Dance like all the time. Twitch was my favorite. Um, and he shows up as someone with so much joy and so much light, but you don't know what people are going through. That's what I kept hearing over and over that people were saying all throughout the day. You don't know what people are going through. It's always the folks who show up with like a smile on their face, the comedians who are really battling stuff, right? Um, at the end of the day. So that's why Black love becomes so radical because we don't know what people are going through. But when we show up and we connect with each other, we can sometimes maybe even just that one person like help them not to make that choice. Tell me about Darby's journey of Black love growing up in New Orleans. Oh man. <laughs> you know, New Orleans is a, a special place, first of all. Um, it's in the South, but it is very different from the rest of the South. Um, so Black love to me looked maybe different from other Southern stories, right? Like my my maternal grandparents, my grandfather grew up where many of his first cousins decided to pass. And so he had that experience of like, I present as a white man, but I am very holy in all things Black you know, like, I'm Black and I'm proud, James Brown type of guy, right? Um, and then my grandmother on my mom's side is a beautiful brown-skinned woman who, if you looked at them before my grandfather passed, they look like they're in an interracial relationship, right? <laughs> but they weren't. But that then colors the rest of, like, what that family dynamic looks like. They have children who are on the full spectrum of what we offer as Black people, everything from like a deep dark chocolate to, you know, light skin with green eyes and curly hair that can't go into a fro, right? So, cause you got this beautiful mix going on. So Black love just meant a whole bunch of different things. It wasn't always one thing for, you know, this monolithic idea. Um, and I'm thankful for that in a way. You know, I also saw my my dad's parents. They were much more, they're not from New Orleans. They're from country Louisiana, Folsom, Louisiana, much more traditional. You know, we barely see our neighbors because the <laughs> because we're on acres of land kind of thing. Um, but growing up in New Orleans, it was sometimes hurtful to see Black love not represented. And then when you did see it, it was, refreshing um and my story was I didn't grow up around outside of my family around a lot of black people like I went to majority white schools and went until I went to Howard part of the reason I chose Howard um, <laughs> um and so I gravitated to anything that 
reminded me like I could get that as a black woman as a young black girl growing up um and I didn't always see those stories I didn't read romance novels growing up I didn't watch a lot of you know romantic things growing up I was reading like goosebumps (laughs) or or biographies um I tell this 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 tells you just how dorky I was this this funny story um Martin You So Crazy was real big when I was younger I'm sure same for you. Um, but my parents didn't think I was old enough to watch it. So there was one time, family's all together, everyone's watching it. My dad gives me Martin Luther King Jr.'s biography and says, baby, but you're reading about the real Martin. <laughs> and my little nerdy butt, like when my cousins are trying to like, you know, make fun of me, like, ah, you can't watch Martin, you so crazy. I was like, but I'm reading about the real Martin. <laughs> and that's what it was I found ways found you know like stuff that um found those black stories where I could and I'm thankful for it I don't know if that answered your question but (laughs) I was so I was going to ask you you know black love as you was explaining it 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 comes in all shapes oh yeah in all forms you know Describe me the black love of your grandmother pulling you to the side and say, when are we going to get you a man when you came home that one day? Because you are the, quote, oldest of the two sisters, and they were both in a relationship. And she wanted to know what we about to do about you. Oh, so somebody's been reading my Washington Post articles. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let me tell you, um, in the South, you get partnered fairly early, right? Like, I grew up thinking I was going to be a rebel. Like, I'm not going to get married till I'm 25. (laughs) That was being a rebel. That was being a rebel. Because my parents were together since they were 20, 21, right? My grandparents have been together since they were 19, 20, 22, whatever. Um, So I was like 25. Like, I'm going to get to grow up before I get married. (laughs) Um, And... That obviously is not what happened. Um, and so, you know, my grandmother would hit me with the, well, you know, I just really hope God lets me live long enough to see you get married. And I'd say, well, mama, you have like a ton of grandchildren and a few of them are already married and have kids and all this stuff. And she's like, yeah, I know, I know, but I'm talking about you. <laughs> um but you know what's funny this this tells you about the evolution right because I did grow up with her saying that kind of stuff but now as a 39 year old still single woman um has been in relationships but you know hasn't led to that yet um my dad and my grandmother and I were talking one day I think I was like 37 38 and my dad was like oh have you started thinking about like freezing your eggs and you know that kind of stuff and my grandmother goes hold up Tamron Hall just had a baby at 45. Don't you rush my granddaughter. And I was like, whoa, where have we come from? (laughs) Like, okay, I see you, mama. You're starting to get it. You're starting to get it. That like, for me and what I've had to, what I hope that I have helped my family in the South understand is I could have been married 10 years ago if that's what I really wanted, right? That for me, I don't want to get married to check off just like, oh, I'm married. Oh, I got kids. I'm checking off the list. I want to get married because I've met that person who I want to take this crazy lifelong journey with. And that's no 
easy feat, right? <laughs> like that's not, we've all seen a ton of people be married and miserable. And I don't want that. If I had married the person I was with at 25, I'd be divorced. I'd be unhappy. I'd be all kinds of just bad words, right? <laughs> Yo, if I was married to the person I was with at 25, I don't, I don't know what my life would have been right now. Like you just put me in a certain, first of all, I had to remember. Then <laughs> so just being honest, no disrespect, I had to remember. But I just know it would not have turned out okay. Not at not at 25. Like it just would not have been okay. And I mean, I was living it. You know, we were in DC and you know, discovering new things. Detroit itself is a pretty, you know, it's a black town, even though it's in the north, it's a pretty black people are primarily pretty conservative. You know, it's pretty blue collar. You go to work, you go home, you get married. And so we may not marry or pair as early as you were down in New Orleans, but they pair. You know, by the, they, they pair. Like, my godson is 26. So I'm just going to leave it like that, okay? He's my godson. You know, I was in middle school holding him. You know, he's 26 right now. I just had a gender reveal. And he's having a kid before me. I mean, it's, it's real to what you're saying when you're coming from these places. And, we, you know, we're still on the track of Black love when you say, it was half of the reason why you went to Howard. Describe that love that you felt when you went there or your experience in love when you got to Howard. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I had actually already told, I was going to go to University of Southern California. I'd already told them I was going. That is a huge difference. Very big difference. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I couldn't skip over that. That is a huge difference. Yeah. Um, Cause I always knew that I wanted to be in communications in some way. And, okay. you know, USC was one of those big journalism programs. Like um, my school was very much into, you know, you go to the big schools, you, you apply to USC, Columbia, Syracuse, like that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so I was gung ho to move to LA and Howard had a program called weekend at Mecca that they offered me a chance to, to be a part of. It's not at all a weekend. It's from a Thursday to a Tuesday, but I guess weekend at Mecca sound, sounded cuter. <laughs> and um, they bring you in in April in DC. And anybody who's ever been in DC in April knows that it's absolutely beautiful at that time. And if you've been on Howard's campus in April, then you know that you've got all the things that like would aesthetically make you want to come to Howard happening on campus. You've got all the sororities and fraternities coming out. Um, you've got people on the yard and like their best outfits playing foosball or something like that. They're hanging out, they're reading, you know, on picnic blankets and that kind of stuff. So I saw all of that. I saw folks protesting by the A building because that's also what happens <laughs> on Howard's campus in April. I saw people, exactly, exactly. I saw some people on the flagpole. I saw someone dancing like the ooh la girls and I was just standing in the middle of the yard like I've never experienced anything like this before and I have to go here um and it it was at once like I felt like I was home but also just seeing the diversity of experience and and seeing like okay yes it's black people but it was by no means a monolith. Like you have someone protesting, you have someone coming out and each are happening at the same time and have space to be going on at the same time. And, you know, nobody's judging either of them for what they're doing. Like, I was like, yeah, no, this is where I need to be. I called my parents 
that day and said, I changed my mind. I'm going to Howard. And they were like, what? <laughs> okay, sure. I guess so. <laughs> you know what's so crazy about that balance you say where on one side is protesting, other side, you know, the, the fraternities are coming out. On the other side, people are stepping. The Caribbean students are playing soccer. And you seeing all these things, right? And you making me understand it was just in Thanksgiving. And we say things so casually when you um, leave, when you go to Howard. And we're talking about some of the food. And somebody was like, talking about bad food in Thanksgiving. And I say, well, it don't make no difference. If you replace this plate, if you replace white oppression with black oppression, it's still oppression. And they was like, yo, we're talking about yams. I mean, and I said it so, you know, just so casually. It is like, this is why people don't want to mess with us, right? Because we, we throw that in in every single conversation, any moment that we can. And we say it so carelessly. And the only people who understand it and can receive it without a pause is someone else who went there. Yeah. So when you just expressed that, that, that was part of our, you know, undergrad experience. And you said that you went to USC for the communication. So was writing something that you had wanted to do from the start or somewhere in that lane? Oh, absolutely. I have always been able to express myself much better through writing. Um, so even as a young kid, like I knew, I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew it had to be something that involved that, like that was always, um, the thing I gravitated toward. Um, so, you know, it's funny because I used to tell people like, it must've been cultivated. My dad would play on the keyboard and he would write songs and I would sit next to him and start to write like my own poems or whatever. I found out most recently that my mom also used to love writing growing up. So it was, it was like destined <laughs> to, to people who loved writing and doing that kind of creative expression, getting together. It was always probably going to come out in that way. Um, and I haven't always been someone who feels comfortable opening up to people, but when I write it, I can bear myself. I can lay it all down and, don't feel some of that same trepidation. Um, and so then, you know, then it was figuring out like, well, how do I turn that into a career? <laughs> um, and at the time, the only thing I knew of was journalism, be a reporter. Like that was, that was kind of it. So my first job um, in high school was actually on the sports desk at the daily newspaper in New Orleans, you know, writing about like all the high school sports every week. Um, and then, you know, so I wanted to, like, take that route. I soon realized I didn't really love the reporting grind, but that I love telling people stories and helping people feel seen through, like, uh, through my words. Um, and so then I had to figure out, like, how do I do that, not just in a reporter capacity? When you came out of Howard, did you go straight into writing? Did you get yourself a media job? Or did you have to be a manager at a store like some of us? Myself. A little in between. Um, so I actually went to grad school right out of Howard, um, partly because I quite hadn't figured it out, but also because, you know, this is the thing my therapist says that Black women do. Like, we got to get another degree, another accomplishment, you know, to feel whatever. Um, so I went to grad school, got a degree in American government and public policy, and was trying to figure out, like, how do I merge <clears throat> this love of writing and editing with being in D.C. and, you know, having a passion now and a 
intrigue about public policy. And so I actually started working in DC government as a writer editor after schooling and did that for several years um, and did a lot of like freelancing on the side to still get the creative juices going, but um, started going down the line of like more of a practical route, mostly because journalism jobs don't offer you a lot of money and I needed money. <laughs> um, Can you repeat that last part, please, for the people in the back? I needed money, yes. yes. They, they don't <laughs> tell you when, you when you say, oh, I want to be a journalist. Oh, yeah, your first job might offer you 25K. What am, I, what am I supposed to do? With, what am I supposed to do with 25K? So respectfully <laughs> to you, respectfully to you, at least you knew that 25K was low. I was coming from a place where when they said 25K, I just blinked. I was like, okay. I, I had no idea it was no money until I got my first check. And I thought, well, maybe that my first check is in the hole. No, this was the hole. Like this was the hole. So I had no idea. But you're right. You come out and, you know, working in communications or in media, the pay it's not good. Then on top of that, you're living in, in a very expensive city. So you're at Howard, which is not a um, Walmart price school. It's pricey. Then you live in Washington, D.C. But here's the thing. You got a black college and you live in a black city. What was Darby's dating life in that black town of that era? Trash. <laughs> it was trash. I mean... So um, I'm pretty forthright about this at this point. This is this is my story that I dated a lot. I have dated a lot. And, you know, for some people that can be like, oh, like I have friends who haven't dated a lot. And they're like, yeah, but you've like they look at it as like the grass is greener. Mm. You've had the opportunity to meet a lot of people. You've dated a lot. Sure. That's great. But also when you date a lot of people. And those things don't work out. It sort of reinforces negative patterns and ideas in your head about trusting people, right? So there was a long period in my dating life, especially in DC, where I was dating people, but I was not at all invested in them and I didn't trust them. So I would get into relationships where it was like three or four months, we date maybe five or six. And at some point, either I would say, you know what? This is, I'm, I'm not, this ain't going anywhere. Or the guy would be like, do you like me? <laughs> like, I mean, do like, is this really what you want? And that would just happen over and over and it would just reinforce it, right? Um, and then there would be an occasional person who I actually fell for, but I didn't really know what to do with that because that wasn't really my judge. And so then he didn't really get the real me. It was, it was trash, Jay. <laughs> like, it was bad. I met a lot of, as, as a writer, we got all those words that you just like, trash, trash, You're totally fine. Keep going, trash, continue. It was trash um, because, and thankfully I've done a lot of my own growth work um, and hopefully those men have as well, you know, salute to them, shout out to them. Um, but um, I had all these like, you know, trust issues, perfectionism, like all this stuff mixed in and you're trying to figure all of this out on your own like my parents love them but they didn't have the same experience right like they both went to college in Louisiana they didn't know what it was like to move away completely from home thousands of miles away you know be on your own trying to like navigate like being an independent woman quote unquote 
And also, what does it look like to try and build a we at the same time? Like, they didn't know how to really explain that to me. They they instilled in their daughters in a good way, like, the man is not the goal for you. That you are the goal, you are the sun, you are the moon, like, all that kind of stuff. But the consequence to that was I didn't always know what it looked like to then build something with someone, right? It was always like, okay, we can do this, but like, if it's going to at all impact, like, anything in my life, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, bro. I don't know, like, where you fit in that, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm I'm just trying to imagine somebody breaking up with me and saying, I don't know, bro. I'm trying to imagine how that would how I would receive that, you know. Maybe I have been told that. Maybe that's why I'm in therapy now. I don't know, bro. You know, that's that's yeesh. When when you're doing the dating thing in DC and you're working, is that when the idea of talking about dating, like when you was writing for when you did the blog Choices Voices, is that where the idea kind of originate from? Absolutely. I needed to uh, unpack some of that. Right? Um, so, and, and remember I was working for DC government at the time, so I needed a creative outlet. So it was a little bit of both. I wanted to write in a way that I could get out some of my creative juices. I could be more honest. I could start doing some of that growth work for Darby, but also I just needed to vent about some of the experiences I was going through. Um, so it's funny because, because at that time there were a lot of people that were doing dating blogs. And so I had a few folks reach out to me and they would want me to come speak on panels to talk about like relationship advice. And I would say, have you read the blog? Because if you read the blog, then you would know that I should not at all be giving anyone relationship advice. If anything, someone should be giving me relationship advice. I'm just relating to you, right? I'm just saying, yeah, girl, I also went on a date with a guy who told me five minutes into the date, he had read my entire blog and that he thought I was still in love with my ex. Like that's, yeah, I also experienced that, right? Um, so it was really just a way to, like I said before, I express myself better in writing to be able to do that. And that led to some great opportunities, it led to the Washington Post, like all that kind of stuff. It led to people, you know, writing to me on the blog and saying, oh, wow, I don't see these stories being written anywhere else. Like, I can relate to this. Oh, I finally feel seen, like that kind of thing. Um, and I was like, well, maybe that's something I should be doing. <laughs> How were you able to pitch that to the Washington Post? How did you make that transition? Because you're writing for the government, you're doing the safe living in the sense right as safe as it can be and then you're writing the romance section in the washington post how does that happen well um it was a few prongs one i had a friend who was working for the washington post at the time so she um i think i was out with her one night and we ran into the editor of the relationship vertical for the washington post and so Thankfully, I have great friends who speak me up when I'm with them, right? So she was like, you got to read Darby's work. Like, it's really good. It'd be amazing for the vertical, which at the time I think was called Solo-ish. Um, and so the editor said she would go and read the blog and, you know, talk to me after, see if she liked it. And then I could come back and give her some pitch ideas. 
Um, and she did. She said, you know, one of the things I really love about your writing is that it's raw. Like it is, you're telling the God's honest truth about like what you're going through. No sugar coating. <laughs> um, and she was like, I want to, I want to have that on, on here too. Send me some ideas of what you'd want to talk about. So I did that for a few of them. Um, I then experienced the difference between writing on your own personal blog and having your business in the Washington Post, which is a totally different, you know, experience. <laughs> it's great. It's a great experience, but I don't think I was mentally prepared for it. Um, and so I had wow. to like, it wasn't like it, I didn't get any trolls or anything like that. Right. It wasn't that I just felt so exposed. I just felt like, I'm still like, I hadn't grown out of some of those situations. I was writing about stuff that was happening in the moment. It wasn't stuff that like I had experienced a year or two down the line and I had worked through it. It was like, no, I'm literally in this moment having this experience. And then I'm writing about it and putting it out for the Washington Post audience to read. And I just felt like I was an open wound still walking around and it, it wasn't, it didn't give me the joy that I wanted it to, right? Um, having my byline in the Washington Post was nice. Like that was, of course, that was great. But I would read them and my whole like body would start to tense up because I was like, like my mama's reading about, <laughs> you know, this experience. Like, and I'm talking about the people in my life too because they're part of my story, right? So even like you said, the one where I was talking about my grandmother saying, you know, TikTok, when's the baby coming? Like my grandmother read that story. <laughs> so, you know, it just, I had to grow. And thankfully I did, you know, that was uh, six years ago or so, but um, it was, it was amazing opportunity. It, it showed me that I wasn't quite there yet to be vulnerable on a national stage for people. So you're writing a national, you're, you're writing in front of everybody and you're writing for the Washington Post, which is a pretty known paper. And I want to, and you correct me if I'm wrong, when you were writing your blog originally, was that during the blog era when we all was just out there shooting and we, yep. we didn't, we had like, we didn't know nobody, you know, in the early days of Twitter and, it was because my first writing job was uh, dumb rappers need teaching. And let me tell you, I know there are some rappers that probably want to punch me in the mouth. Right. That was my first writing gig, you know, and I was doing that in radio. And listen, I always wanted to be Jay. So I didn't, you know, rest in peace to Combat Jack. The reason why his name was Combat Jack is because he was an entertainment lawyer. and He didn't want nobody to know that this was him. Me being Jay Hall, I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to let you know it's me. So I'm just going about what my opinion is, who I'm upset about. And, you know, during that blog era, we were all just shooting it. And I don't know if it dawned on us like the way it can now that other people were reading our stuff. Until you go to a place, like you said, that already has like a hundred year name with the Washington Post. That's therapy within itself that you're going to probably have to check in for. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I mean, was, did you find yourself did it mess with your creativity? Because if, if you are trying to speak your truth and you take, for example, you and I got mutual friends, right? And when we get into like the Friendship Chronicles, I can't help but to think, right? That somebody in there is somebody has a trait, at least a trait of someone that you and I know. 
I know what my experience has been like when I speak my truth. Can you kind of speak on like your grandma read that? Everybody's not going to be a fan when they feel that way. Have you experienced that, those challenges or those those things? Yeah, for sure. But um, shout out to my therapist. She's amazing. Um, I don't care anymore. I cared when I was writing for the Washington Post. And that's what stopped me, right? It did affect my creativity. Like I didn't, I wasn't ready. After I, I think I wrote four and then my editor's like, okay, what's the next one? And I just, I didn't have it. I was like, the next one, I had something in my mind. I can't even remember what it was now, but I knew I didn't want the guy who I was dating at the time to read it. And so then it was like, well, if I can't be honest, because it was going to require me to be honest on that stage, I got to pull back. Um, but I find that, especially as I've been writing the books, it has forced me to be vulnerable. They're, they are fiction. I'm, a, I'm just going to say that. I know I have to remind people of that, all that they are fiction, but... Fiction, 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 fiction. fiction. Yeah. <laughs> You know, people nowadays, I like they don't hear things. Want fiction, fiction, fiction. All right, continue, please. They are fiction, and it's not on some best man type of thing where, like, it's fiction, but, you know, really this person is, like, exactly someone else. This person is exactly. It's not that. But I will say um, the themes come from an honest place because otherwise I'm not able to write it, right? So I've certainly experienced whether or not the stories are actually real, the feelings that the characters have in there. Um, I've and, and I have friends who have experienced them and thankfully they have allowed me to pull inspiration from them without suing me. Um, <laughs> I think maybe because the, the exact situations are not real, um, that gives a little bit of cover to, to everyone, but um, I mean, to answer your question, I had to get to the point within me, within Darby, that like, you know, the first, the shoe diary starts off with, in the first chapter, there's a sex scene. I had to be okay with my dad reading that, right? Like, and I think six years ago, mm -hmm. I might not have actually one of the best things that ever happened to me when I was first, when I was working on my first book, it took me like 10 years to do. But I was working on my first book. I had an opportunity with an editor at Atria Books. And he, to his credit, um, met up with me and laid out everything that he hated about the book. <laughs> like, he hated it, right? Um, and I hated hearing how much he hated it. It was the best thing that could have happened to me because he was brutally honest and said, I don't see any heart in this. Like I've read your writing on your blog. I've read your writing in the Washington Post. There's not, there's no Darby in this. There's no vulnerability. There's no openness. There's no rawness. You got to go back to the drawing board. And that was because I was still scared of who might read it. I was still scared of like, if I'm so vulnerable and open and honest in this, even though it's fiction, someone's going to read it. My My mom's pastor is going to read it and be like, What's Darby doing up there in DC? Like somebody go get her, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm only I'm really laughing because I know that I I've heard that before. I still get that now. Like I don't know how they do in DC. You like look like 
this is a really human thing. No, that's just how they do out there. It's, they feel like you out there living in hedonism or something like that. I don't know what that's about between D.C. and New York, which I lived in both cities. They feel like we just out there just running wild. And with you being a creative and you're doing that, that has to you know play a part. I, I wrote a story that got published about how um, single black men never get invited to wholesome things. We don't get invited to baby showers. We don't get invited. And I, one of the things I wrote or my tagline was, you know, they think we're going to bring like a, a stripper we just met the night before around family time, you know. And when I tell you the next day on the thread with the fellas was silent because they were all fathers. I'm the, I'm the only one that's a biological. I'm a parent because my niece and my godson are going to be played at. But when I tell you it was silent and then for like three hours and this is a thread that be popping. I mean, you know, Link here, link there. You know how I go. And then this one Tuesday when it got published, silence. And all of a sudden I hear, well, we don't invite people because we're trying to take care of this. And I mean, all these profound now is like people doing Grammarly checks and everything. And they would just, I mean, it was a real disdain. An unintentional, you know, was, was like that. And for you getting through that process when you got to that point when you didn't, when you no longer cared, do you remember besides that brutally, or was it that brutally honest, conversation you had where it became that that moment of like, no, I, I got to live this truth. That certainly helped. And I, I've had similar experiences as you had um, with that. Like there's one post that I wrote about how sometimes you have to ignore your friend's advice. And I was, friends, I was. Woo, they did not like that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't like that one at all. Um, but they know me and they know that I don't seek out. I don't like unsolicited advice. So eventually I had to be like, okay, y'all are in your feelings because it was in the Washington Post. Like, I get it. But y'all been friends with me for 20 years. You know, you know how I am. <laughs> so, um, but no, it was, it was partly that conversation with the editor. It was partly, honestly, like moving to New York and deciding, um, I don't want to live scared anymore. I mean, that was even part of the move to New York, right? Like I lived in DC for 15 years, not because I, I love DC. Don't, I don't want anyone to think that, but DC didn't feel like home, but I was still there because I was just getting like job opportunities and blah, blah, blah. I had wanted to move to New York for years and just for different reasons had talked myself out of doing it. Right. Um, and in 2015, I had a life scare and I was like, I've gotten a chance to still live on this earth. I'm not going to take it for granted. So if that means moving to New York and I don't know exactly how it's going to work, if that means going on a date with that guy who like, I'm not quite sure about, if that means, you know, writing all of the like deep-seated fears and insecurities that I have into some fiction novels that are going to go out nationwide then like that's what I was that's what I was like left on this earth to be able to do so I just got to do it so let me just ask you really quickly what part of New York were you in um I live in Washington Heights right now so Manhattan Ooh. Okay, I was in BK, but Washington Heights is not a game. So 
my heart goes to you. <laughs> it definitely goes to you. It's not a, it's not a game, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a game. It can be a good day. And it can be a bad day. One day, everybody is jump roping. Then the next day, everybody's jump roping. And you follow what I'm saying when I say that. That's just a real thing. But tell me about the Friendship Chronicles because it's very easy on the surface level to look at it and to paint it as a Black version of Sex and the City. And, you know, we see these TV shows and every once in a while when they want to invest in Black, we see the formula for black women living in the city, you know, blah, 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 blah. Can you speak on the friendship chronicles and what kind of brought that idea? Cause you already mentioned that it took you 10 years to get your, your, your first baby out there. Speak about that and the importance of not just friendship chronicles, but the black woman friendship chronicles. In that. Yeah. You know, the, the funny thing about when they do those tropes is that a lot of times I don't really believe in the friendships. Like if you really look at them, sometimes you be like, do those girls even like each other? I don't, I don't like they, yeah, they're around each other a lot, but there's a lot of judgment that's happening in those friendships. And for me, I had to tell an authentic story of like, if these women are going to take on the hard, hard work of delving into romantic relationships, right? Then they're going to need their girls as a support because that's what I have needed on those days when I'm like, you know what? I'm going on a boycott. I'm not doing this anymore. It's just, I'm done. It's been my girls who have been like, all right, like have your moment today, but you're not, you're, no, that's not what we're doing, right? <laughs> like, you know um and and so I couldn't for me now this is not everyone like I the thing I love about romance is that it's a large umbrella there are many different stories to tell but the stories that I wanted to tell didn't feel authentic without having that strong support system around Mm -hmm. the women to even get to the point where they would be comfortable with the idea of a happily ever after with someone else, right? Like, I think a lot of times people tell these lovely rose-filled stories about meeting someone and all of a sudden there's no mess. There's no like ups and downs to get through. It's like, oh, I met him at a coffee shop. And from that moment forward, like it was just rose and sunshine and we were frolicking through the park. I don't know about you, but that's never been my life story. So, I mean, if, if it no, it hasn't. And if I could, it always seems to be a very extreme. So it's even the stream of nothing but roses, or it's a Tyler Perry fan where you're just getting hammered and you've had the most extreme toxic relationships and then you get saved. It, it's never the, the first time I saw a delicate medium and that I had appreciation for it was the best man. You know, that was, that was the very first time I sat through a romantic comedy film, Black, and I was like, oh, wow, this is the perfect mix of us, what we're going through in that journey. That's the vibe that I got from you describing the opening wedding scene with Reagan. By the way, I had to check myself because I've, I've definitely done what the gentleman did. I've definitely done a little subtle things. And, you know, I'm, I've been learning lately in my journey about the F-boy ish I've done in the past and didn't even realize it, right? Because I'm doing this comparison where I'm not as bad as this guy. But I've definitely done the wedding. Oh, you look nice. And I see your shoes. And I can see you. Like, I've done that. And I'm like, ah, Jesus, another thing I've done that I have to stop doing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I just got to stop. Just stop. Just say hi. 
just say hi. You know, when you're describing that story and you're putting those things in, what's the balance for you? Because you know what I'm when I'm what I was expressing in that, was that important for you to to have that balance of truth but romance and what is that? Absolutely. It needed to it needs all of my stories need to feel real to me, right? And life in general is not typically on either extreme. It is not, I mean, even when you talk about F boys, I find that most people now there are some jokers out there, right? But most people are trying to do the best that they know how to do, but we don't have a lot of uh, models of what that looks like. So sometimes you do stuff that you don't realize at the time is like, oh, that was, that I didn't. Was it. That was <laughs> I didn't, but I'm looking back now and I'm like, it was trash. It was trash. It was trash. And that comes with experience. Um, and the thing is, each person, whether you realize it or not, is probably a villain in somebody's story, right? Like, um, I'm sure that there are men, I know that there are men who, like, when we were breaking up, who would be, who told me I was cold and emotionless. So there's, it's, it's not just like, um, something that is supposed to raise up the black woman and like make, you know, like it's not that it's not, it is trying to find uh, a way to show like just what our regular days look like so that the people who read it can, can say, Oh, I feel seen. Finally. I had that experience. The first book um, that I read that had that mixture for me was Accidental Diva by Tia Williams. I think I wrote it, read it like 2004 or so. And it had like all the romantic tropes about, you know, like um, she meets this like charming guy who's got a little bit of rugged edge to him. And, you know, they have this like all consuming, passionate love. It had all that stuff. But it also showed this young woman who's like up and coming in her profession and she's trying to figure out what life is and like, how do I, I'm trying to figure out my career at the same time as I'm trying to like be there for my friends at the same time as I'm trying to date this guy that I just met at the same time as, you know, it's like that meme where it's like, I'm trying to drink more water and work out <laughs> and go to therapy and like do all these things at the same time. And we don't always get that right. And so my stories are an attempt to be like, you don't have to get it right. You can be imperfect. You can be messy. You know, life's going to bring you through some ups and downs. You're going to have some funny moments. You're going to have some sad moments. You're going to have some moments where like you need to come together with your people to really stay strong. You'll have some romantic moments, some sexy moments, all of that. Like that's just life. And hopefully at the end of the book, every time you read it, you're like, okay, that person is experiencing life just like I am. And they got their happily ever after, their happily for now or whatever at the end. So that means I can too. The first book, The Shoe Diaries, I saw on the podcast, you talked about the collection of shoes and what they mean. I had no idea you would keep or any woman would keep breakup shoes. Because I definitely got some FM Tims. I definitely have some, I'm not picking up the phone Nikes. But I kept all that in my head. 
You understand? All that is in my head. I had no idea you walk around with you. I, I just thought when I walk in any woman's house who got a whole rack of shoes, I'm like, oh, she just loves shoes. Now I'm going to be walking through their house and I'm wondering, married or not, what does that left shoe in the, in the corner mean? Like, was, is that something that you collectively seen throughout your journey of friendship and bond? Or that's, was that personal? Where did that come from? And how does that plan to start off the Chronicles? Well, it's certainly personal to me. I I definitely um, do that with my shoes. Like I uh, I could bring. Well, when I lived in Maryland, I had a shoe closet. I live in New York now, so not so much. But I still have a significant amount of shoes. And I used to tell people I could tell you my my adult life story through the shoes that I have in there because each one of them has like different moments that I can remember, that I can recall back to like, oh, those are the shoes that I wore when I went to Paris for the first time. Those are the shoes, like you said, that I wore when I found out that my boyfriend was cheating on me. Like those are the shoes that I wore um, when I went on that first interview for that job that I really wanted. Like it's, it's, I think, and I think people do this, whether it's with shoes, it doesn't have to be with shoes for you, right? It's shoes for me. Some people might be books, some people might be jewelry, jeans, whatever. But we have these inanimate objects that we tie our stories to. It might be music, it might be dance, like all kinds of stuff where you can remember. I definitely do this with music too. You remember stuff instinctively. It's like your body is holding on to it. Your brain is holding on to. As soon as you pick that up, mm, I I remember, I remember what happened (laughs) I remember when I tried to seduce someone with those shoes and it didn't quite go right. Like you have all That's of that. <laughs> right? Man, that means, you know what that means when I hear that? It had nothing to do with me. It was all, <laughs> it had nothing to do with my good looks. It was, it was, this was your attention from the start. Um, be, be, In our limited time, I'm, I want to try to get up and I want to get into this, these chronicles. Try to explain these next two titles for me. So we you just broke down the shoe diary. Let's get into Bloom, Where You're Planted. That title says what to you? Oh, it says so much. So it first, it, it talks about um, not comparing yourself and your life to others and finding what makes you happy and blooming in that, blooming in your own right, um, blooming in the areas that you, you have decided on your own are the ones you want to cultivate. Um, and so the main female character in that book, she's actually already in a relationship. She's, she and her partner are together, they love each other, but they're experiencing um, like some stagnation, I will say, in their relationship. Um, And so she has to figure out not only how do I bloom in my own personhood, but how do I tell my partner what I need from him um, intimately for us to continue blooming um, without denigrating his role in my life? And so that, that book has like a, it talks about that piece, but it also talks about, you know, that character is also finding herself, comparing herself to all of her successful friends and has to figure out like, okay, Jennifer, where do you, like, what's your flag in the sand? And then once she figures that, then she can really bloom, bloom where she's planted. She can bloom in her own right. All right. The third book, London Calling, that says what? London Calling. So that main character moves to London. Um, so that's where the London part comes in. <laughs> she moves to London 
And she has dated a lot of people. Um, and she's a super successful woman, but has never been successful in her dating life. And so she goes about making this like pact with herself. I'm going to meet my person by the time I turn 31. And like life just doesn't normally work out that linearly. <laughs> um, and she goes, she goes on some ups and downs in dating and then eventually does uh, meet someone who forces her to have to evaluate um, what she's been calling into herself, right? Like what are the patterns that she has been uh, reinforcing, the fears that she's been having about not trusting um, in order for her to cultivate an open and honest relationship with this person? So I've been noticing lately when it comes to the trilogies, people are kind of breaking away from it. And I saw that you said you, you're thinking about or you may have already made the decision about writing uh, another book in the Friendship Chronicles. So my, my final question, if you know, if you can answer if that's true, because, you know, we want to know how far is it going to grow. But what is the importance do you feel in Black romance? So first, I can say that I signed a second deal with Harlequin, so there will at least be three more in the Friendship Chronicles. Um, so shout out to Harlequin A for support. Um, they must oh, like wow. you, girl. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'm actually, uh, we'll start outlining book four next week. So going right back on deadline. Um, and then... You said, what's the importance of Black romance? Is that what you asked me? Yes. What's the importance for you in black, when it comes to Black romance? I think it's everything that we've been talking about. To me, having the ability to read about people who look like you, having honest, authentic, romantic love stories is a radical thing because it's not something that I grew up seeing a lot of. I mean, there are certainly pioneers in black romance that I would never take away from, right? Like you have your Beverly Jenkins, you have your Brenda Jacksons, you have Jasmine Guillory and Tia Williams and all those folks who are blazing trails. But we know what the majority stories are when it comes to love stories and romance and who gets to have uh, these like grandiose love stories, right? Like we know what that looks like and it's by and large not black women or black people generally. Um, so I look at it as something that is a part of the revolution of the humanity of black people because I'm gonna try to tell a quick story. I got my book deal for, or Harlequin offered us the book deal right around the time that George Floyd was murdered. That was an amazingly weird experience to have because obviously we were all devastated. And then this thing that I've been praying for forever is happening at the same time. And my mom was the one who checked me lovingly, but checked me and said, no, 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 no. You don't get to feel bad about this moment, right? Because you're what you're not going to do is allow, like what they want is to take away your joy. What they want is to take away the thing that like you've been working hard for and you got it. And now that you got it, you get to give that joy and that experience and that like 
seenness to other people. And I was like, mom, you're right. You know, like I'm crying, right? I'm crying. But she was right. It was a reminder that the ability to be able to tell stories in a way that, and, and I'm, you know, my stories are not just for black people, right? They center black people, but I want everyone to read them because we should not be the only people who are learning about black love stories. So that's a whole nother. Repeat, repeat that last part again. I'm so sorry <laughs> for the people in the back in the white. I mean, the black, please repeat. I'm sorry. Go ahead. We, we should not be the only people who are learning about black stories. Okay. Thank you. Okay, cool. cool. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so they do center blackness, but they are not just for black readers because of that. But it is it is an honor and a privilege to be able to be in that space to, you know, if in any small way helps someone who is like me remind themselves of their humanity and of their ability to walk on this earth and find their people, find the people that make them happy, find the people that, whether that's your best friend or your partner, your life partner, right? Find the people that help them make this crazy journey called life that much better. I love that. I, I love to hear it. This has been an experience. So you're first, this is your first time on the show. We always got to let you know that this is an open door. So we want you to come back anytime. Definitely when you're getting closer to the book, please come back. Or if there's something about love being taught, you know, you and I, we are in Black Twitter universe for the time being. Until we find another hub. <laughs> if there's something in particular, you know, please, 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 you know, hit me and be like, hey, Jay, I think we need to go in here and talk about this. I got 30 minutes. We're going we gonna to do that. I'm going to check in with Ken and we we got you. Because I want this to be something that we always come in. Because everything that you got to say, I just want you to know this is the beginning of I want people to get to know that this is the avenue that's out there. Because when I think about Black romance novels and I think about Black love and all of that, it's a journey in a sense, is what I'm hearing. Your personal journey, the stories of the characters and the books, you know, from Reagan and everybody, it's a journey. And how you intertwine the the friendship, okay, this book is now going to be about this one and this one and all of that stuff, but Reagan is still present. All of those things, I think, are, are in our life because that's the turns life takes with us. You know, like my right hand, he just got engaged, and it's like, oh, wow. Like, now it's like, and how it affects everyone else. It's like, oh, man, this is this is real. Like, Oh, he he actually got what he's been searching for. Okay, what's happening now? And I love that your stories are kind of a combination. And I got a cheat sheet because you know we this eight shoes. I'm not gonna front. I got a cheat sheet, but hey, listen, it's the only advantage we have. Okay, we take the advantage that we have. <laughs> but um, please feel free to come back. Um, let if you could, everyone know what you got going on and how they can check out for you. Absolutely. Can I just say, um. I also want to impress upon men to read romance novels. I know that is not typically, uh, it's not really like normally what men do, but I have found. You're breaking I, my heart right now. Go I ahead. know. <laughs> but, you know, it's true, right? <laughs> but if we want to talk about, especially again, bringing up the Twitch thing, if we want to talk about like, men exploring their emotions and their feelings and how they connect with people. Reading romance novels is a, a great starter to be able to do so. You want to know what women think about love? Read a romance novel. 
might be a might be an open door to that. So that's just a quick plug. Um, so what is going on with me? So like I said, I just signed the second deal with Harlequin. Very excited for that. Um, so I will be writing nonstop <laughs> probably for the next year. Um, and just doing a lot of continued promotion of the first three books. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Both are under at Darby Bayham. Um, and I just launched my author newsletter about a month or so ago. So that's a great way for people to stay connected with me. Um, and in the theme of everything is under Darby Bayham, you can subscribe to that newsletter at darbybayham.com slash newsletter. It's real easy. It's real easy, folks. <laughs> I thought it was easy. You thought you were struggling with your own name for a little second, but that's your business. Right. <laughs> that's, that's your business. It's totally fine. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for this. Um, this has been an experience and it's, it's been the start of a learning curve journey for myself also. And thank you for everything that you had to say. And please, please, please feel free to come back. But I know you're going to be doing some hell of a writing for next year. So I'll, I'll make the intention to check in on you and be like, hey, you're right over there. You know, it's a lot of words. It's a lot of words in the dictionary. Just want to make sure you're using them all. So, yeah, just want to tell you thank you again for showing up so thank you all right thank you for having me thank you for having me and i will absolutely be back i love this conversation um i think i told you when we were first talking about it like i could talk about this kind of stuff all day long um and i'd love to be able to have some other authors come on and let's do like a round table or something together because there are people who know even more than me and i i want to make sure that they're getting, you know, their stuff out there as well, too. So. That's, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Appreciate it. I'm not sure if this is the last episode of the year, but this has definitely been a fantastic, fascinating episode with my dear friend, Darby Bayham. I appreciate you for showing up. As usual, my Blackness, I'm pretty sure it's been elevated. Darby, your Blackness been elevated? Absolutely. Just a little bit? Okay, cool. Make sure you check out the History of Being Black podcast on all of the platforms you go listen to, whether it's Spotify, Apple Music, I can't name them all. Whichever one you got a subscription to or you want to zoom in for free, that's what the episode is going to be. Usually you can find me on all social media platforms at Jayhaw Society. Be blessed for successful and we'll talk to you soon. Ghost. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcasts. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.